Well, hey, if you have a Bible, would you uh, open up to Acts chapter 11? And while you're turning there, I will just simply say uh, the honor it is to be here is uh, the honor to preach, period. It's a gift from God. It's not something uh, anyone deserves in and of uh, their own right or of themselves. Um, It's a gift of grace. And then specifically to be preaching here and to be preaching from the book of Acts, it was Grace preaching through the book of Acts 15 years ago that changed my life. I mean that in in no small way. It was through the preaching of the word um, that God captivated my heart and set me on a trajectory that I literally have never been the same since. And so to be here uh, with you this morning and to open up Acts with you, I'll open it up as I'm talking, uh, is, it's mind-blowing for me. And so I want to uh, share a passage with you that has captivated my heart and life and has shaped our church, Imago Dei, which means image of God. And, and I hope to encourage and, and maybe even challenge you a little today as well. I was walking recently with a young man from our church. He's in his early 20s and angsty about the future. And as we are walking and processing, at one point, he turned to me and said, you know, flustered, and he says, don't you ever just want to do something with your life? Which, on the list of subtle insults, Right, if you really think about it, right, that's pretty. That's pretty good. But I, I totally get what he meant, and I think we've all been there. What's happening for him is the days are just beginning to blend together. He's just following in the rat race of life, and he's looking at his first twenty or so years of his life, and he's saying, "Where's it gone?" I think every single person has these moments of clarity and you're not always guaranteed when these moments of clarity will come, but they just hit you that this right here, right now, like this is your life and, and this is all there is. How do I make this count? And when that hits you, there's this kind of weird thing because like, it's like this gravity presses on your soul while at the same time your heart begins to soar for far off lands and something worth dying for. I want to do something with my life. But what? I want to make a difference. I want to even change the world if I could be so ambitious but how? That's why we're in Acts this morning, and this is what Grace called out in me 15 years ago. That, that it's through the story of the church, and here in Acts chapter 11, just tucked away in the, in the middle of Acts, is the origin story of a church that literally changed history. It's the church in Antioch. And I want to warn you, as origin stories go, this is pretty boring. <laughs> Which, I, can we say that about the Bible? I don't, I don't know. You know, we, we, we revere, this is the word of God, and yet there's, there's no one's gonna get their head cut off. There's no radioactive spiders. There's no, like, origin story, this is kind of slow. And yet, we're gonna see people who are 
doing something with their life. By the power of God, they are sending their life beyond themselves. And this passage produced a a phrase we've been using in our church that I want to share with you, which is simply this. You want to change the world? Join a healthy local church. Because it's only the church, we'll see, that has the message and the means to take life and and multiply it beyond itself. And so what I want to show you in Acts 11 and 13 is that Acts presents the church in Antioch as a a model to imitate. And so what I want to do is I want to highlight a handful of qualities of this church And as I highlight these qualities uh, and how they were birthed and how they prioritized their life, I want to call you individually and as a church to imitate and walk in them. Okay? So, uh, Acts 11 verse 19 is where we're going to find our first thing I want to call you to, and it's simply this. It's a life of evangelism. Evangelism. And by evangelism, I, I, I mean telling people the good news about the grace of God in Jesus, that that he is king. So so telling people about Jesus and calling them to turn and follow him. You see this in verse 19 through 21. The word of God reads like this. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution, I'll pick that up in a second, that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia, and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. If you have a footnote in your Bible, it'll tell you, and almost every scholar will agree that what he means by Hellenists is Greeks. That is the Greek-speaking non-Jewish people. So they're in a, a city far away from Jerusalem and they're encountering people who are not familiar, who are not walking culturally in the, the Jewish storyline, perhaps and probably unfamiliar with Yahweh, the God uh, that we find in the Old Testament, the God of the Bible. And it says this, they, as they encounter these people, they were preaching the Lord Jesus. So in this Roman world where there is very clearly a king whose name is Caesar, they're encountering people who do not even know of their culture, their religion, their background, and they're calling them and saying, hey, actually, there's a different king. And they begin to tell them the story of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. And what's beautiful, verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And this church in Antioch was born through evangelism. But I want to show you is this, is that you, likewise, are called to a life of evangelism, of proclaiming this kingdom. This is the job of every believer In fact, Charles Spurgeon says every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. I don't know the motives of Charles Spurgeon when he said that, but I don't take that to be uh, condemning, but rather a simple, like a statement of identity, that this is what it means to be a Christian, that the call of Jesus on your life 
is not a call to abstract theological ideas, but rather it's to participate as citizens of a present kingdom. And Acts, and I'll show you, I'll put some context around this, Acts highlights this every personness of this call. So here's a little context that will help you. In, in the book of Acts, I'm sorry, hit there. This is, oh, back. Uh, Acts chapter two. So this is the beginning of this story. It says, uh, those who received his word were baptized. They were added that day about 3,000 souls. So 3,000 people come to believe in Jesus. This is in Jerusalem. It's the birth of the church. And, and, and then the very next thing it says is, this group, this 3,000, they devoted themselves, pay attention here, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And as the story of Acts goes on, chapters 3 through 7, there's this intensifying persecution that happens, culminating, building, chapter 7, the brutal murder of a man named Stephen for his faith. And so Acts 8.1 says this, Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day, the day of Stephen's death, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. So intense that they were all scattered. They had to run for their lives throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except who? The apostles. Whose teaching were they devoted to? The apostles' teaching. Right, that was the, the center gravity of their community was this teaching of the apostles. And on this day of persecution, they're scattered except for the apostles. All the leaders are gone. And so as we enter into this story, what you need to understand is that these are religious refu- refugees. They are poor. They are powerless. They don't hold any sort of social capital. And there's no central leadership. And so if you were to kind of put that all together in a recipe, that should spell the death of Christianity. From just a logistical human mindset, you throw that all together in a blender, and that should be the end of the story. And instead, what happens is what we see in verse 19, that those who were scattered because of the persecution, they went beyond Judea and Samaria, now to the outlying cities, the first steps of the nations crossing cultural boundaries, proclaiming Jesus, what happens is this, is that unknown believers, unnamed believers, proclaim Jesus as king. And this exposes this is present at all in this community. This exposes the, the false understanding of ministry and life that there might be when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to living this out, that this is somehow the, the job of the professionals and not a personal calling on your own life. They clearly saw evangelism and gospel proclamation as part of their identity, as part of their responsibility. Now, I wonder if it's just as a thought exercise for you to consider in your life, just if, if grace, and thank God it's not. We, we need healthy churches all over, but just for the sake of a thought exercise, if grace were the only church in the world, 
If Grace were the only church in the world, and let's even just limit it to this room present right now, if this were the only believers in the world and everybody had to book it except for the elders, right? Is there the same DNA present here that is present in Acts? And I think theologically, we would all say yes. We, we, we have to say yes. And yet experientially, we allow ourselves to, to say, okay, I, I'm, I'm somehow not a part of this story. That's not my responsibility, my calling. Evangelism is the call, the press on your life. You want to do something with your life, there is only one kingdom that cannot be shaken, And so you proclaim that kingdom and call people into it. You are making an impact. Your life is reverberating beyond yourself. The second thing I want to call you to that we can see, the quality that we see in Antioch is this. I'll call you to make disciples. You see this in 22 through 26. It says this. The report of this came, of the people coming to faith, it came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So they, they call in this guy Barnabas to, to help build up or to disciple. And when he came, he saw the grace of God, and he was glad. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So he comes, he sees that they have faith in Christ, and he begins, he says, okay, hey, I want to build you up into maturity in this. So notice he doesn't say, okay, you've learned this, now let me teach you some new things, but rather he calls them to remain faithful to Jesus with steadfast purpose. He's saying, hey, there's this truth that you've learned. There's this grace that you've discovered for your sins. There's this kingdom that you've encountered. Now grow deeper, more and more mature in this reality. He brings them up, and then what's interesting, look at this, verse uh, 24, it says this is a a spirit-empowered ministry, right? He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and as he's doing this, a great many people were added to the Lord. And so evangelism, proclaiming Jesus and discipleship, growing further and further in your knowledge of who is God, what has he done, how does that shape my identity? Those are the questions of discipleship. How then shall I live? These things kind of roll up like a, a cycle, and they, they produce a greater evangelistic harvest because it's saying, as I learn more and more of his mercy towards me, that I was lost and he searched me out, that leads me to proclaim his kingdom and his love to more and more, right? And so the, it's two sides of the same coin. A great many people were added, and so, verse 25 As more people come to faith, the need for discipleship, for for training, for maturity increases. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. Teaching becomes this central activity. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. He says they, they, they taught the people that, that teaching the, the word becomes this central activity of this community. Because he's saying, hey, if you are invested here, if there's something of power here, if there's something in your life, right, then 
the word must be the engine that, that creates that and drives that. It's the gospel that pushes this forward. And so the call for you as you consider, okay, evangelism, discipleship is this, that you would participate in a community that keeps the word at, at the center. This is, this is central because this is what we're calling you up further up and further into. And that you would learn to teach others likewise. As we'll see in a bit, this teaching that happened was not indefinite, right? It was a year. And, and what ends up happening is you'll see there's a, a, a goal. It wasn't teaching just for the sake of knowledge growth, but it was leading them somewhere. And likewise, let me lastly say this. If you are here and you need to learn, we're singing songs or preaching a sermon or you're in, talking in conversation with people and you say, I, I don't understand. Well, the best way to understand is to not understand. You ask questions. You, you say, help me. This is the place where we want to mature you up, where we want to find those places that are lacking and fill in those gaps and strengthen you because there's something God has for your life. And that's what we're gonna press into on these next four, but just before we get there, if you're thinking, okay, you set this up, change the world, do something with your life, and then you said evangelism and discipleship. Like Jackson literally said that in the announcements. Like is this really revolutionary, it's pretty basic. Yeah, like that's exactly the point. That's exactly the point. This is intensely practical, what I'm talking about, and it's intensely ordinary. The revolutionary aspect of this is the, the gospel. It's what God has done through Christ to save, and as we press that into our lives more and more, what it produces is a life that multiplies out beyond yourself. Into things like, this is the third thing, a life of generosity. Verses 27 through 30. Says this, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And I highlight this for you, this generosity, not simply because they did the thing, right? They gave the money, but it shows something about the way that teaching, that discipleship, that gospel was producing a posture, a character in their life. I want you to notice that this generosity happens actually before the need occurs, right? So it's a prophet that comes and says, this is going to happen, and they respond in that moment, not in the future moment, right? So generosity's posture is not, hey, let's wait and see. It's instead, how can I play a part, there's different motivations. They didn't say, okay, this famine is $100 bad. Let's gather up $100. But rather, instead, they said, how can I help? How can I participate? Because they're not motivated by the need. They're motivated by the gospel. As God in Christ has been generous to you, they're saying, we're generous in return. 
They're recognizing, okay, Jesus is king over the earth, and so there's an eternal global story that I am a part of, and and a, a, a mission and a family that I am a part of, and the treasures and the glories of this present age just simply don't have the appeal and they look at their life and they look at the, um, the limitedness of their geography, the limitedness of their days on the earth, and, and they just literally can't be there. They can't, they, there's a distance and a time that separates them, but they say, no, when I send my money, when I send my friends, when I send my life forward, I'm able to participate in, in a story that is larger than simply the one I'm in right now. As a church plant, we've, we raised some, some money and um, there's a local business owner in Downey who is an elder at a church in Long Beach and so he supports us and I'll, I'll meet with him and I'll give him updates and every time, we have the same conversation every time. Every time I meet with him, I'm giving him the update, here's what's going on and I just say, hey, thank you for partnering with us and every time he just like, he like does this, he puts, he says, he's really intense and it's intimidating, he says, no, thank you. <laughs> And I'm always like, I don't, I don't know what to do with that. You know what I mean? Like, that's, and if we just had this conversation a couple different times, I fall into the trap every time. No, thank you. He says, you know where my money would be if I didn't send it? It'd be in my bank account. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, that's like how money works, man. Like that's, you know, that's just, and he's like, he's like no, I, I can't, like I, my life is limited. I'm here. I can't participate here, but now I can. My, my life is, is being sent forward because of this. Thank you, right? You live a life bigger than yourself when you send your resource, when you send your people, when you push it forward. That's what we see here. They, they're not looking to the need. It's everyone according to their ability. So no one's left out on this. It's not, well, if you have money, it's saying, no, I want my life to push forward. I'll trust God to multiply and take care of it. They send money not knowing if it's gonna be enough, Sometimes you're like, I don't have enough, I can't. No, they, don't, they send the money before the need and everyone according to their ability because they're saying, I, I want to participate beyond myself. And so Paul and Barnabas, they head out. And then in chapter 12, verse 25, they come back. And I want to pick up the story and highlight our fourth thing. It says this, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there was in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, we've already met, Simon, who was called Niger. If you have a footnote, it will tell you, Niger is a Latin word meaning black or dark. Lucius of Cyrene, Lucius is a Greek name, and Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, that's a, someone a close to a cultural power, and then Saul, who we've met. And the fourth quality of this church that you ought to emulate is this. It's a pursuit of diverse community. And I want to show that to you. I want to make that clear that this list in verse 1 that is given is not an accident. You need to know, we're not doing a deep study of Acts, but the names and the geographies of those listed in this, story, in this verse, take my word on this, they don't play any significance in the rest of the story. They don't come up again. They're not players in the story. 
except for this very thing that Acts has been emphasizing. Acts emphasizes the global nature of the gospel. And in Antioch, this city, for the first time, this message of Jesus has reached the nations and it gives us this list to show this is what the gospel creates. A list of different ethnicities and cultures. It's because the gospel is a gospel of grace. Because it's, it's not based on what you have done to earn or, or prove or stand in your own righteousness before God. Because it's his gracious initiation because there's nothing within you that causes salvation, because there's nothing within you, that means there's space for people who are not like you. Grace gathers and makes space. This is the, the momentum of this story. It's drawing to this moment. The nations gathered together. Church, we live in Los Angeles where the nations are our neighbors. The nations are our neighbors. And, and a passion for the church to look like the city in, in our culture and in our, ethno, our ethnic uh, makeup, that ought to cause you uh, a certain restlessness and longing for that. Not because it's politically correct, but because this is the momentum. This is the, 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 where the scriptures, the gospel leads. It's this gathering of people. Where the grace me- means I'm not pursuing my own preference. Instead, I make space and sacrifice so that others can be here. And if you want your life to make an impact, you ought to gauge it consistently. It, it, am I... Uh, is the gospel leading me to pursue fellowship with people that do not think, look, and act like me? And I want to just draw your attention there, and there's no mistake that Acts shows us this, and it presents Antioch as a model and hub, something that is beautiful. And from this beautiful community that's now birthed, there's something we learn about how they operate, and that's the fifth thing. We find it in verse two and verse four. It says this, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Verse four, so being sent out by, not the church, by the Holy Spirit, they went down to, to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Luke, who wrote this, gives special attention to the agency of the Holy Spirit in the life of this church. And the fifth thing that I want to call you to that we see modeled in this church is a sensitivity to the Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit dwells with God's church. That is a theological, black and white, objective truth. And there are mandates in scripture about keeping in step with the spirit. This is the call for our life. It's black and white and objective. But as we read here, how that gets played out in the day-to-day is often subjective. There's a sensitivity and a sense of moments. And if we're honest, subjective makes us uncomfortable. I read verse 2 while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, and I think, how? 
You know what I mean? Like in what way? Was it a voice that came from heaven? Was it a feeling? Did someone have a prophetic word? Like what does that even mean? It's so vague. And what you just see is that Luke's desire is not really to show the inner workings of how that went down. Instead, what he does say is that they were a worshiping community. They were fasting, which means that they carried with them a sense of expectancy. And, and this is often what I have found to be what's missing in the life of individual believers in the life of churches is this sense of expectancy. You show up to your family's party and the, the oven's on or the, the grill's going and so when you show up, you come hungry, right? You, you hope your grandma's making that, that dish that's six generations deep. You want an extra scoop. You want, you're hungry. You know you're, ah, oh man, you're, you know, just like you're, you're ready to eat. When you gather, is there, whether it's here on a Sunday morning, whether it's in your grace groups, whether it's for a prayer meeting, whether it's with friends, is there a sense of expectancy? What, what happens when you gather? What, do you, what are you hoping to find? Even being here this morning, what are you hoping to find? Are you, are you hoping to obey? Say, God, find an area of my life and press into me a way that I can be more obedient, a way that I can conform my life into your image of your son more and more. Is that the expectancy that you carry? Does God's prompting need to be crystal clear in order for you to obey? I need steps one, two, three, four, five, and then maybe. The call is to adventurous, gutsy faith. It'd be so easy in this moment, right, to be like, we just all ate funky food, right? <laughs> we don't really need to send off two of our leaders to leave us. We have this beautiful thing happening right now. And that leads to the sixth thing. I said a handful, but I have six, right? That's one more than a handful, and that's because this, this sixth one is special. And what this sixth one is, it's the first five. Again, it's, and here's the sixth one. It's multiplying. You take the first five and you rinse and repeat them. I want to call you to live a multiplying life. After fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This beautiful church with gifted teachers, multi-ethnic, multicultural. I mean, the temptation is to gather and huddle. They, they, were, they had been scattered from Jerusalem. Now they found community. They have something beautiful. The gifts are in operation. There's, I mean, Saul is a teacher in this, Paul is a teacher in this church. Amazing. Yes, let's keep this. And the Holy Spirit says, no, I have something else. We need to push this forward. We need to push this out. And what follows from here in the book of Acts is you see Paul and Barnabas do the same thing we just, I just pointed out in Antioch. Those five things I, I highlighted are not just random things that I found. They actually mark Paul and Barnabas' ministry for the next seven chapters. They preach Jesus evangelistically. They stay and disciple. They, they have a concern for generosity, especially toward the poor. They build communities everywhere of Jew and Gentile and they are sensitive to the Spirit's leading. And so the sixth thing is that they multiply it forward. Everywhere they go, they establish elders and then move on. They establish elders and move on with the expectation that it will multiply. So much so that here's Romans 15, one of the most 
bananas verses in the whole Bible. This is what it says. It says, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Elycrium, sure, um, Paul's writing this and, and he's saying, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Listen, I believe in the doctrine of what's called the doctrine of inerrancy, that all scripture is perfectly true, right? But I struggle with this verse because this verse is just not true. If you were to pull the demographic data of first century Rome, like the first century Roman Empire, the Christian faith would be such a minority that it might not even register. And Paul here has the audacity to say, I've done all that I can really see I could possibly do here. I need to go do something else now. And that's because implicit in Paul's understanding from Antioch forward is implicit is that the gospel is like a seed that multiplies and pushes out, constantly looking, what's next, what's next? There's this awesome church. If I'm Antioch, this is where I want to be. And the Holy Spirit breaks it up. The goal is not to have a cool church. The goal is that the glory of God would be seen amongst the 18 million in LA County, the seven billion in our globe, that the nations would know that there is life in Jesus. The goal is not to find a place where I can passively learn about Jesus, but rather the the goal is the good news of the grace of God planted like a tree in your life that grows and, and sends limbs and branches and seeds to the uttermost parts of the earth. It's your turn. And this is for every church and every generation of a church and every individual within a church must reckon with this. It's my turn. It's my turn. You can do something with your life. You can even be so bold to say, change the world. This local church changed history. And I mean that in the most literal way possible. That that Grace Evie Free right here, right now, would not be here if not for this multiplying moment of Acts 13. That you could, if you want to do Ancestry.com or 23andMe, whatever your you know, whatever you want to do, and you trace your lineage, you would find the root right here. Through this costly and in some ways ordinary church. Because people in ordinary life prioritized evangelism, discipleship, generosity, pursuing the nation's diversity, all those that were there. They didn't put up borders based on what was just comfortable for them and they were sensitive to the Holy Spirit and then they multiplied that out. Doing something with your life is not something that you are left to wonder, have I, could I? But rather, it is the heritage and inheritance of those who follow Jesus. Because the gospel is this, that God, who is infinite and holy, He sent his son not to judge the world, but to save it. 
that Jesus is our representative, our king. And as our king, as our representative, he gave his life as a sacrifice for ours. So your sin, your judgment, your condemnation, everything you could not do, everything that you deserved in rebellion against God is put on Christ. He dies, but as your king, right, what's true of him at the cross is also true of you. That's how kings work. And so he takes that, and then he's risen from the dead. And he stands now as your king, and what's true of him is true of you. And so you will be raised as well. He lives eternally, and that is your heritage. That is your inheritance. And it's so true. It's so much so that this is the reality of the gospel is that you have, if you have faith in Christ, you have a new identity in him. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. Even so scandalous as we could say that God delights in you. He's empowered you with his Holy Spirit. He's called you to go and play a part in what he is doing. He is the God who saves and he's calling his church. Like he's adopted you into his family and said this is the family business. This is what we do. Come learn, come play a part. This is your story. You are not left to wonder, is my life matter? Does it make a difference? When you plug into a local church and you live out and you these things and you confess your sin and you come to him and you say, God, I need you and you follow him in an evangelism and disciple making, generosity and pursuing all types of people and being sensitive to the spirit and multiplying that out. You, you can be assured. There's a confidence you can have that your life is playing a part in the kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that this would be increasingly true of Grace EV Free. That th- this church in La Mirada, a small city in the midst of a big world, that through the faithfulness to the gospel, through the faithfulness of the people to you, and more importantly of you to them, that there would be working out history-changing things that we don't even see how it ripples and affects. But God, that you would work in our lives and we would not waste our lives, but we could we actually walk with the confidence that you are with us and that our life, the days, are pressing forward into something that will echo and reverberate through eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.